Amen. Well, last week, we did a deep dive into the divine miracle, miracle of justification. And if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it because that passage, it provides the powerful backdrop for today's verses. To quickly summarize it, though, we said that justification is a legal act of a judge and that it's much more than mere pardon or forgiveness because forgiveness is a negative commitment. Forgiveness is not giving someone what they deserve, but justification, on the other hand, is a positive commitment. It declares someone as righteous and that there's no basis for them to be punished. And so if you're justified before God, that means you have been declared perfectly righteous by God himself, and you're free from any threat of condemnation. That's what justification is. And here are the three main points we made from the text last week. First, we saw that God alone is the source and initiator of our justification by his grace. Next, the only grounds or reason God can justify sinners like us without compromising his justice is the blood of Christ and his sacrifice for us. Without the cross, none of us could ever be justified. All the the righteous wrath of God for your sins and my sins, they were poured down on Christ and fully extinguished. We said last week, it's like a, a campfire that has the whole Pacific Ocean poured on it. God's wrath towards our sin as believers, it's never going to be rekindled again because it's all been extinguished at the cross. God will never act in anger towards you even when you sin. Now, this doesn't mean that God is indifferent towards sin or that your sins don't have major consequences in this life and your experience of God. What it means is that your sin never affects his heart towards you. It doesn't affect his desire to bless you. Unless you understand justification, you will never understand God's heart. You won't understand how God can not only declare you righteous, but view you and treat you as though you were perfectly righteous. Finally, we ask, what is the means of justification or the only way that we can be made justified before God? And what's the answer to that? It's faith. It's only faith in Christ's blood that can justify us. All of that is summed up nicely by verse 26. It says, God presented him, referring to Jesus when he was sacrificed on the cross. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, as amazing as those truths about justification are, it gets better. (laughs) It gets even better. And I hope to show you that through our short section today. In it, Paul responds to a number of common objections to the gospel, especially from his beloved fellow Jews that he wanted to quickly call out. Paul was a master evangelist and he didn't want anyone to dismiss the gospel because of a mere misunderstanding. And so he very briefly addresses three common objections to the gospel that he's going to unpack in much greater detail later in Romans. His clarifications here, they reveal three massive implications of the doctrine of justification by faith. Those three implications, they form our outline today. And number one, it's no reason for boasting. Two, no room to discriminate. And three, no rejecting the law. No reason for boasting, he's going to look at in chapters 4 and 5. No room to discriminate, he also looks at in chapter 4, but then in even greater detail in chapters 9 through 11. And no rejecting the law, that's unpacked in chapters 6 through 8. 
For our first main point, listen again to verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No. On the contrary, by a law of faith. From what I understand, the word boasting in this verse has its origins on the battlefield. And it was a cry or a speech that was used to stir men up to risk their lives by charging into combat. Just think about virtually every war movie you've ever seen, any account of war you've ever read, no matter the era or the culture, before men rush into battle, you almost always find a speech or a chant, some cry that's used to rile up the troops and give them courage and confidence that they can win. Sometimes the boast is in superior strength. And we're stronger. And we're more, we're more skilled. We have better weapons. Other times it's in the element of surprise. It's in strategy. Other times the boast is based on the justice or virtue of the cause. But in every situation, the boast is what gives confidence. It's what you're trusting in for victory. I looked at a number of speeches by generals this week, and I'll give you just one example of this from Napoleon. This was before the French war with Austria. And he says, Shall we allow our audacious enemies to violate with impunity the territory of the republic? Will you permit the army to escape which has carried terror into your families? You will not. March then to meet him, tear from his brows the laurels he has won, teach the world that a malediction or a curse attends those that violate the territory of the great people. The result of our efforts will be unclouded glory and a durable peace. I love the language here. But you see what he's doing? He's saying, these people who've won, these people who've won a victory, you don't need to be scared of them. We're going to go and rip their victories away from them. We're going to defeat them. And when we do, we're going, to, we're going to receive incredible glory and we're going to achieve safety and peace for our nation. That's what he's saying. It's a boast. Now, for the majority of us here who've never been in battle before, you might be thinking to yourself, why does this matter? Like, how is this relevant, this information? Well, all of us have something that we boast in. All of us have something that we boast in. Tim Keller, he incited, insightfully pointed out that what you boast in is what gives you courage to face the day. All of us have different battles, different challenges in our life, different objectives that we are pursuing. And so what we boast in is what we based our identity on. It's what gives us a sense of significance and value. Or as we said last week, it's something that we use to justify our existence. Now, some people, they look to their intelligence for this. Some people look to their success, maybe in their career or some other area. Some people, it's in their beauty or their appearance. For some people, it's their reputation. You know, in a church like this, it can be common for people to put their confidence, to make their boast in their morality, in their character, the, the good that they've tried to do in their lives. I was, I was reflecting on my own life and in high school, I'd say that my boast was in sports slash popularity, and the two went together. See, I was not popular, and then I did really well in basketball, and I became popular through it. And just an insight into the shallowness of, of my soul, I remember at one point thinking to myself, you know, people who aren't good at sports, and people who can't be the best at something, do they just kind of walk around always depressed? And I didn't say that out loud, but I remember having that that thought. It's like, what, 
and I didn't realize it at the time, but what I was, th- what I was thinking is, you know, what, what's their boast? What, what makes them feel significant? Because for me, it was that. And it's funny, my senior year, in one of our biggest games, against our, one of our biggest rivals, I played, I played one of my worst games. I just performed terribly. And I was so down afterwards. You know, my coach, he watched me for a couple of days. A few days after that game, he came up to me and he goes, John, are you doing drugs? <laughs> I was like, no. Why do you ask that? But my demeanor was so different. And the reason is because so much of my identity was tied into being a good, being a good athlete, being successful in the way I thought that that would affect people's view of me. All of us boast in something. And there are at least two reasons why Paul shifts so suddenly from talking about justification to boasting. The first reason is that pride or an elevated view of ourselves is the root of all sin and idolatry. And one of pride's biggest expressions is boasting. For example, remember Romans 121? It says, for though they, talking about humanity, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead of glorifying the creator and thanking him, humans, we naturally exalt ourselves and act like we're the center of the universe. So God is the most important being in the universe. We were made to worship him. But what we do is the exact opposite. We act as if we are the most important beings in the universe and that it is completely justified for us to live for ourselves, to live however we desire Therefore, when we boast, we take credit instead of giving thanks. We take credit ourselves for some blessing that ultimately comes from God rather than giving him thanks for it. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, it captures this thought so well. Paul says, who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't? Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, What's God given me? I've, I've worked hard. The things that I have, those are things that I've accomplished. Now, I'm not arguing that you haven't worked hard, but think just for a moment with me about where did the raw material come from for that in the first place? Did you design your brain? Did you wire your brain? <laughs> you know, your healthy body that you used, did you give life to yourself? The time and place that you were born and the opportunities that that afforded you, did you pick that? No. Ultimately, ultimately, all of our blessings, they trace back to God. That's one of the reasons with my kids is they're doing different events, things like sports. I try and regularly remind them, those of, those of them that are athletic, I say, God has gifted you in this way. This is something you can enjoy, but it doesn't make you better than anyone else. You can't boast about this. This is something that comes from God. Now, others of you might be thinking to yourself, I don't boast. I'm a quiet person. I don't like to draw attention to myself. And what you need to understand is that boasting, it doesn't have to be expressed in words. It often is, but whether it's spoken or not, everyone finds things to boast about in their hearts. So this is the first reason that Paul brings up boasting. He knows it's a universal condition that infects each of our hearts, and it, it reveals our pride. It reveals the biggest thing that keeps people from being justified by faith. The second reason Paul brings it up now is because he already mentioned in Romans 2.23 that the Jews boasted. That's the same Greek word. The Jews boasted in the possession of the law 
and by implication in circumcision. And so he knows that the, that the gospel of justification by faith alone will be especially offensive to his Jewish peers. Now, how does Paul respond to boasting? How does he reply to human boasting? Verses 27 through 28 again. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, on the contrary, by a law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. If boasting is excluded in general, as we saw earlier, it is even more excluded in regard to salvation. Paul doesn't just say we're saved by faith. In Romans 3, he goes out of his way to emphasize we're saved by faith apart from works of the law. He wants to make sure no one confuses this. Our works, our efforts, they don't contribute anything to our salvation. For most of you who've come to a church like ours, you've heard that before. You probably don't think that you earn your salvation, but the danger in a church like ours is to come and think, yep, I need Jesus to save me. It's 50% Jesus and it's 50% me. Or maybe for some of you, it's 99% Jesus. I really need Jesus, but I also have to contribute. I also have to be a good person. I have, I have to kind of keep my act together to some degree. And whatever it is, if it's Jesus plus anything else that you contribute, plus anything else that you're relying on, that's a different gospel. That's not the gospel of the Bible. That's not a gospel that saves. Our works don't add anything to our salvation. In fact, Isaiah 64, 6, this is incredible. It says, all of us have become like something unclean and all of our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. Notice first the universal aspect of this. All of us have become like something unclean and then all of us, all of our righteous acts are like polluted garments. Now, this is a little bit graphic, but the word polluted here, it literally means menstrual. So in our context, what God is saying is that our attempts at righteousness and to be good, it's like a used tampon. Now, just, can you even imagine going to someone you respect and saying, hey, I've got a handful of used, used tampons for you. It's like, that would never happen. I, I promise none of you are thinking about giving someone that for Christmas, right? Like that's, not, that's never going to happen. And yet, God says, when you try and make yourself right with me, when you think that you can be good enough to justify yourself for me, it's like that. That's what it, that is what it's like. And this brings us to the highest defense of the gospel. The gospel says that you are so wicked, you deserve eternal punishment from God. That you and I, we are so powerless that it is impossible for us to ever save ourselves no matter how hard, no, no matter how hard we try. A question, for you is, a question for you is, do you really believe that? Do you actually believe that? Especially those of you children who've grown up in church. I think there are so many people who've grown up in church and they've never wrestled with how offensive the cross is. You can't be accepted into heaven because you've tried to be a good little boy or girl. That can never make you right with God. Our friends, others we know, everyone in the world, no one can be made right with God apart from the cross. You see, if you could earn God's approval and acceptance based on how you lived, you would have something to boast about because your work contributed some degree to your salvation and justification. This is part of why I stressed last week that we can't turn faith into another work. 
That it can't be this, this thing that we muster up and have to have a, enough of to somehow save ourselves. Because if we think about faith that way, it will either lead to a lack of assurance that we're always uncertain. Do I have enough faith to be saved? Or it'll lead to pride. It'll lead to this, this kind of arrogance and thinking somehow, you know, we are better than others because we're more humble. <laughs> Supposed humility. Faith never achieves anything from God. The only function of faith is to receive. This is why boasting is not excluded by a law or principle of works, but by one of faith, which is again why Paul stresses in verse 28, for we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Have you reached that conclusion? Have you reached that same conclusion? Because this is the conclusion that everyone who becomes a Christian must reach that we are justified and made right before God only by faith in Christ, apart from and totally independent of our works and efforts. This is why theologians and pastors love to say that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. Have you heard that before? At the foot of the cross, the ground is level. Do you know what that means? It means two things. First, it means that everyone in the world has the same need. No human Being is born superior to another, but all are lost and without any hope apart from Christ. This reality is so offensive to moral people and religious people, to to conservative people. And the reason is because it says people who have gone to church every week, people who have tried to avoid certain sinful desires, those who are married, if they've tried to be a good husband, tried to be a good parent, What the gospel says is that person is just as lost before God as the person who walked away from church, as the person who gave in to their sinful desires, to the person who's failed as a parent and as a spouse. Second, the ground is level at the foot of the cross means that not only do all have the same need, but all are saved the same way. We are saved only by grace, which God could only offer us through the blood of Jesus. And this thought is so offensive to more progressive and liberal people because it seems exclusive. You're saying the only way of all the religions in the world, the only way to be made right with God is through Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Yes. Yes. Because he is the only way that sin can be dealt with. He's the only way that sin can be dealt with. And I would also add that all the major religions, all of them, they have exclusive claims and the gospel is the most inclusive of all of them. See, the idea that everyone can be welcomed into heaven if they try and live a good life, that's exclusive because it excludes moral failures like us. What the gospel says is everyone can be saved. Everyone, if you'll humble yourself and recognize your need for Christ. The cross of Christ and its doctrine of justification makes salvation, to, makes salvation available to everyone as a gift, but only as a gift. And therefore, it excludes boasting as not only inappropriate, but absurd, because we literally have nothing to boast about. A Christian has nothing to boast about because we've been saved by Christ's work and not by ours. Now, let's shift to our second implication. The second implication, again, is no room to discriminate, and it flows from the first. Listen again to Romans 3, 29 through 30. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there's one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. 
Here we see one of the main effects of human boasting, which is human division. You see, whatever you boast in, the thing that, that you view as making you valuable, as making you significant, whatever that thing is, the tendency is whatever you boast in, subconsciously, you will look down on others who don't have it. So for example, if, if the core of your identity is, I'm a good parent, I really try hard as a parent, then without even trying, if you see someone who seems negligent, you'll look down on them. You'll view them as inferior to yourself. You don't have to try. You will just do it. The same is, is true when you think about people who identify with their family or their nation or their ethnicity. There's nothing wrong to be proud in that, but if that becomes the center of your identity, what defines you over everything else, then you'll begin to look down on others. It leads to tribalism. It leads to, to division. And this is what was happening between the Jews and the Gentiles at the time Paul wrote Romans. The struggle of, of Jews and Gentiles to be united in the gospel and in their love for Christ, that was one of the main challenges that the early church faced. Now, Paul, in our section, he quickly and brilliantly appealed to the most famous verse for Jewish people, Deuteronomy 6.4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so Paul is saying if there's only one creator in God, then he's not the God of Jews only, but of the rest of humanity as well. And justification by faith, it proves this beyond a shadow of doubt. The Jews, they weren't saved by the law or by circumcision, and then the Gentiles by faith. There's not two ways or multiple paths for different people to get to God. There is one and only one way to be saved, and that is by faith in Christ. And since justification is only by faith, then there's no room at all for discrimination between believers in Christ's church. Remember, the ground, it's level at the foot of the cross. Instead, what the gospel produces between those who believe in it is a supernatural unity that amazes the world and even the heavens. There's a parallel passage to our section in Romans in the book of Ephesians, and I want you to catch how strongly Paul emphasizes there the supernatural unity the gospel produces. You'll be familiar with the first few verses. If you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not by works, so that no one can boast. The same concept. Then he says, for we are his workmanship. This is poema, where we get the word poem from. That is, we are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So we're not saved by our works at all, but we're saved to good works. Now, it is incredible that God has good works prepared for you as a Christian. He already has a plan. He has good works for you to walk in. But we tend to only read the Bible individualistically. In context, Paul's talking about there's good works that God has for the church to walk in as well. And you see that in verse 11. He goes on, he says, So then, so based on what he just wrote about being saved by grace, good works for us to walk in, so then, based on that, Remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. So Paul, right after talking about what the gospel produces, the good works that it brings about, he says, all right, Gentiles, Jews, remember, you guys used to hate each other. You guys, you guys couldn't stand each other. And he goes on in verse 13, and he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
for he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. There's no room for discrimination between believers based on race, wealth, social class, education, age, gender, or any other unbiblical grounds. In fact, as Paul develops the importance of unity within the church in Ephesians, it leads him to this dramatic statement in chapter 3. This, referring to Gentile and, and Jewish unity in the gospel, this unity is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may, na- may now be known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see what, what Paul is saying here? Do you see what he's saying? God's glory, his infinite wisdom, is meant to be displayed through local churches like ours, and specifically through the supernatural unity in the church. And this is displayed not only to the world, but to the, to the spiritual realm as well, to both angels and demons. God says, look, look at this unity. This, this is the centerpiece of what I'm doing in the world. That's what God is saying here. Nothing shows off the the supernatural power of the gospel more than a church filled with very different people with diverse backgrounds and personalities and positions in society, people who would never naturally be friends with one another, who love each other and care for each other like family because of Christ. This is not diversity for the sake of diversity, which is typically superficial and self-defeating. It's diversity for the sake of revealing God's glory in the gospel. If our church is going to make authentic disciples of Jesus Christ, it must be filled with people devoted to sacrificially caring for other members, even if the only common ground that we have with one another is Christ. I was so refreshed. Just last night, I was meeting with a a couple. I was doing a member interview, and as we were talking about why they wanted to become members, one of them said that they wanted to, to be more accessible to other members. And he explained what he wanted is to let people know, I love, I love this church. Now, I'm committed to this church, and I, I want people to know they can ask me to serve. I just I want to serve as there, as there are needs. And I thought to myself, praise God. I want to have that attitude all the time. That's the attitude I want for all of us as a church. And so we have to see the gospel, it rules out rooms, room for discrimination within the church. Now, some of you, you might be wondering to yourself, if justification is apart from works, if, that, if it leaves no room for unjust discrimination between believers, does that mean it eliminates all moral distinctions entirely? In other words, does the gospel make the law irrelevant? You know, it's easy at first glance to see why some of the Jews might have thought that's what Paul was implying. And so Paul, he knew this objection, it would come. And so that leads us to the third implication, and that is no rejecting the law. The third implication of justification by faith is no rejecting the law. Verse 31, do we then nullify the law? Here's the objection. Notice Paul's response. Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. (laughs) So Paul, he, he immediately turns the tables on this objection. And he says, absolutely not. The gospel isn't anti-law. Instead, it uniquely allows the law to be upheld. 
Now, how can that be the case? How can justification by faith uphold instead of undermining the law? Well, just consider the objection. The objection implies that the only reason to obey God is the fear of punishment. The idea is if justification is by faith, not from works at all, then there's no fear of punishment. So then why would anyone do what God wants? Why would anyone do what's right? And this this fundamentally reveals an error because God says perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. If the only reason you're obeying God is because you're afraid of being punished by God, ironically, you're not obeying God. You're not obeying God because you're not being motivated by love. God doesn't want just the superficial, superficial external behaviors of our lives to change. What he cares about is our heart. That's what, that's what he's aiming at. I mean, just think about, about this in another sphere. Think about a marriage. What if a spouse found out that their spouse, the only reason they were being kind to them is because they were afraid of getting a divorce and they didn't think they could find a job. They were afraid of ending up homeless. So that's the only reason they were staying in it, trying to be nice, trying to be pleasant. How would that go if you found that out, <laughs> if you're married? Like, no, no one wants that. No one wants to be in a, in a relationship like that. It's the same with God. He, he's aiming at our hearts. And the only thing, as we've already seen in Romans, that can give us a heart that desires to obey God is the gospel. If you imagine that justification by faith removes the motivation to obey God, your heart, it, it hasn't been gripped by the glory of the gospel. It hasn't been moved by, by God's grace. You haven't seen it yet. Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God. From eternity past, he enjoyed unbroken, perfect praise and, div- and divine affection within the Godhead. In heaven, he was at the center of the angels' dynamic and enraptured worship, which means, as one preacher put it, Jesus already had what we seek whenever we boast. Jesus already had whatever we seek when we boast. When we boast, we're exposing a longing in our soul to be noticed, to be valued. There's this innate desire we have to be enjoyed and respected by those that we respect. And yet, when God the Son stepped out of heaven, he humbled himself and became a part of his creation. And when he did, he experienced something dramatically different than heaven. Rather than constant praise and attention, Jesus picked poor parents and a shockingly ordinary and unnoticed existence for the first 30 years of his life. One thing that was never ordinary, though, was Jesus' character. Jesus perfectly fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law. He never faltered in his love and obedience to the Father or in his love for others. If any human being had a reason to boast, had a reason to exalt himself, it was Jesus Christ. But he didn't. He didn't exalt himself. Instead, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What we all want is to be praised and valued, but Jesus experienced the exact opposite. He was insulted. He was mocked. He was treated as the most disgusting of criminals, not just by other human beings, but by his own beloved father when he was on the cross. He took the wrath of God again for our sins. Now, why did he do it? Of course, as most of you know, he did it to save us. 
He died to, to satisfy God's righteous requirements so we could be justified by faith in him. This was the major emphasis of the message last week. But as wonderful as that is, like I said earlier, the gospel gets far sweeter than that. It gets much sweeter than that. And to help frame this for you, ask yourself this question. Are you more drawn to people who are civil towards you or who genuinely enjoy you? Does your heart long to be around people who are just polite to you or people that, that actually appreciate you, that enjoy your presence? Of course, all of us want to be around people who enjoy us. We want to be recognized. We want to be significant. We want to be enjoyed for who we are. And that longing, it is so deep and so constant that it can never begin to be filled by what you boast in. Whatever you look to, whatever you try and boast in, it will never fulfill that need that we have. The only place that that need can be met is when Christians become convinced that they already have the constant attention and affection and affirmation that they seek from God himself. You already have it. On the cross, Jesus experienced the rejection that we so fear so that we could not only be allowed into heaven, but praised by God himself when we get there. All godly believers will hear the Father say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And so this reveals God, he will be pleased with our works. Remember earlier we said that our righteous acts for an unbeliever, they're like filthy rags. If you're a believer, that's not how God looks at your faith-filled attempts at obedience. That's not how he views them. You have to understand that. I think often we view God as Christians as just a parent who can never be pleased. He's never satisfied. We can never do enough. That's not God's heart at all. Look at, look at Revelation 19, 18. It says there that the saints' righteous acts are like fine linen. So not, not soiled minstrel garments. Instead, in context, it's an exquisite wedding dress. It's a wedding dress that's beautiful and genuinely pleasing to God. Not because our, our acts are completely perfect, but because he loves us and because those works are motivated by love for him. They're motivated by the work that he did for us. Now, this is a thought that would be impossible to believe if God didn't say it himself in his word, that he rejoices over us, that he delights in us, that he's excited about your life. If you do a, a Google search for please or pleasing, dozens and dozens of verses show up that indicate not just that God is pleased by what we do as Christians, our, our attempts at, at, of obedience, but God is pleased just in who you are. Think about 1 John 3.1. Dear friends, behold the love, or dear friends, behold how great the love God has lavished on you. A lavishing love. Why? Because you, because you have been called children of God, and that is what you actually are. That's what you actually are. Perhaps my favorite attempt outside the Bible to capture this reality of God's delight in and praise for his people is in C.S. Lewis's sermon, The Weight of Glory. If you've never read it, it's pretty dense. It's a little, it takes a little while. It's a slow build, but it is so good. You can find it for free online. It's worth the effort. And this is not going to do it justice, just taking a little section. But it's all we have time for. Near the end there, he says this. The promise of glory 
is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ. This is only possible by the work of Christ. That some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. So he's talking here about when we stand before God. And in context, he's talking about how justification by faith in Christ, that leads to believers' glorification when we stand before him. He goes on and says, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible. A weight of burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. It does seem impossible. (laughs) But because of the cross, so it is. For the sake of time, I, I wish, I wish we, in some ways we could close there, but I have to make at least one practical application for you, and that is that we need to learn to transfer our boasting. You have to learn to transfer your boasting. If I communicated clearly, you should all see by now that it's impossible for human beings not to boast. So the question is not if, if you boast, but what do you boast in? And the only way to, to begin to stop boasting inappropriately is to learn to boast instead in the cross. Paul, again, in Galatians 6.14, he says, may I never boast. And this is a strong Greek expression. In many ways, it'd be like saying, may I never, ever in a million years. It's may I never, ever boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The cross is the only appropriate place to boast. It's the only safe place to boast. It's the only place where you can find freedom from the power of sin in this world. Now, how do you boast in the cross? We have to deliberately make Jesus' work for us and God's delight in us as believers the most important reality of our life. That has to be the center of your identity, the center of what gives you significance. This needs to be the the first thing that that we remind ourselves of in the morning, the, the most important truth that we remind ourselves of. And it needs to be the thing that we look to for confidence to face the day. See, the cross is what gives us joy in life, despite the worst of trials. It keeps us from being overwhelmed and defeated by our sin and failures. And the cross frees us from the fear of man and opinions of others. If God is for us, if God enjoys us and is pleased with us, who can be against us? If we could only be saved by God dying for us, we have no ground to ever boast in ourselves again. But if our creator, if the God of this universe, if he loved us enough to die for us, then we have something incomparable to boast in and enjoy for all of eternity. And that's what we have in the cross. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you save us, Lord, from from empty boasting that can never give us the security we look for. It can never give us the affirmation that we long for, the significance that we long for. And God, if there's anyone here who's never recognized their need for a savior, who never has understood the love you've expressed towards them on the cross, I pray they turn to you now. Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, help us just to to be more sensitive to, to how easy it is to to boast in other things, to, to look to other, other things, God, to give us confidence. But I, I pray that you'd make us a, a people, Lord, who 
are so, so proud of what you've done. God, that we would delight in the gospel. We would, we would boast in that and that it would transform our relationships with other people. And God, we'd find the cross as the place that, that actually empowers us, that gives us a real desire to surrender our lives to your commands. Lord, we thank you for this time. And again, we just trust, trust you to apply it to each heart here in your name. Amen. We're going to continue our worship now with the offering.